As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com Welcome back to Scarred for Life, the podcast where we open up old wounds by looking back at the films that scared us as kids. I'm Terry. And I'm Mary Beth. In each episode, our special guest will bring with them a movie that traumatized them as a child. This week, our special guest is Joe Lipset. He's one half of the Horror Queers podcast, and you've probably seen his written work everywhere. From Bloody Disgusting, to Consequence of Sound, The Spool, to his TV recaps with Terry, to his work with Anatomy of a Scream and Grimm Magazine, he's everywhere. Welcome to the show, Joe. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Of course. I'm so excited. Other, I've, oh, sorry. When other people say it out loud, it, it sounds like, Jesus, why can't this bitch just settle down at one site? <laughs> <laughs> You're diversifying your assets. Isn't, is not that, is that the, that the sounds, term? Right. <laughs> yes. If only I could monetize that. Yes. I love it. Uh, Joe, I have looked up to you since I started writing, and I'm so I'm very excited to talk to you. I feel like low-key like a fangirl, and I know Terry is like friends with you, so I'm like trying not to be weird, but I've like looked up to your writing since I started like last year, so I'm oh, girl, very please, excited same. to talk to you. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's so nice. I love the fact that when, so Valeska and I are actually just proofing, uh, she just got a proof copy of the latest Grimm magazine, oh, and we were looking through it, and I was like, oh, there's Mary Beth's article, yay! I'm so excited for this this issue of Grimm Mag, I'm so pumped, um, mm-hmm. and I, got, I was so glad to write the article I did for it, I was very excited, so. Preview. Yeah, I love, I love reading Grimm Mag, I, I gotta look into submitting for it sometime. It's, it's always it's always great. There's the always new call so for pitches articles. is coming out soon. I think I saw on Velasquez's Twitter account. Yeah, yeah. We're going to be focusing on teen screams and Ooh. teen horror stuff. So. Well, that's oh. so exciting. Mm-hmm. So, Joe, what do you like? What is your role with Anatomy of a Scream and Grim Magazine? So Velasca started. So. I have a multiple different writing partners, of which one of whom I consider you, Terry. And yes. so I started writing with Valeska because she has a website called Anatomy of a Scream. And then she's one of only two 
female horror creators that are publishing print that I know of. Although I should double check that because I know there's a UK publication called Suspiria. Yeah, they may be female run. Uh, but yeah, so it's like Andrea Subasati of Faculty of Horror who does Rue Morgue, and then oh, there's yeah. Valeska Griffiths who does Anatomy of a Scream and Grimm Magazine. And I love the work that she was doing. I met her in real life. She's the most amazing person, so I wanted to get on board and try to help out any way I could. So initially I was just writing, and then eventually she was like, hey, could you help me out with some editing? And then eventually I became the promotions manager as well, so I get to run some of the social media stuff with them. And my favorite part of the job is that I get to do the horror bracket. So every June we do a bracket. So the first year we did slasher films, and last year we did zombie films. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a lot I of fun. I love the bracket. It's such a good idea. It's so cool. And I should give credit. We actually stole it from Save Horror with their permission. But uh, <laughs> we do it at a different time of year, so it doesn't yeah. conflict with them. Cool. Yeah, everyone who's listening should really check out Anatomy of a Scream and Grim Mag. Grim Mag is, has been an amazing opportunity just like to write for print and also mm-hmm. just like Valeska is an amazing person to work with. She's an amazing editor and person, and like it's such a well put together, yeah. like piece it looks of like a million piece bucks. of art. I guess it's so weird to say, but it feels like art. And it's like, she does most of it by herself, right? Like the layout and everything. Yeah, she does all of the layout. She does the call for pitches. Like it's one of the reasons why I wanted to help her out because I was terrified she was going to burn out and then not be able to do it anymore. So between her and then CC Stapleton does the covers and she also writes for the magazine and the pair of them are just, they're honestly amazing. And it really bothers me whenever I see people being like, Oh, women in horror that you should follow. And I'm like, these two should be top of your list. There's actually a bunch of folks here in Toronto. Like I, we have this funny thing called the salon macabre where we try to meet up once a month and yeah, they're just like this bunch of badass bitches that I'm always like, okay, how can we make sure that you're getting the due and the opportunities? And they're all like, you can see them slowly climbing the ranks of different publications and different opportunities. And I'm like, yes, girls get it. That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Um, And so uh, you also have your own podcast. Well, you have two podcasts, actually. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Only one's relevant. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, I listen to the other one as well because I read uh, young adult books. I read. (laughs) I read. (laughs) That's so snarky. No, um, (laughs) but uh, so the Horror Queers podcast uh, that you do with Trace, uh, how did that all come together? So Trace and I are both writers for Bloody Disgusting, and he's written there for much longer than I have. And I had always looked at his articles and been like, oh my gosh, there's a queer person writing about horror. What a novelty. Oh my God, I'm not alone. (laughs) So when I started doing coverage of TIFF for them, I I kind of used it as an opportunity to get in touch to get in touch with Trace. So initially I said, hey, you know, we're both queers. This is still something new for the for the genre, so we should do something together. So we began doing an article series which is based on an epistolary fashion. So we I I pitched it as like we just have to write letters to each other. We don't have to coordinate all that much. We just watch a film and then we'll do this thing. And we did that for a year, and I spent the year trying to convince him that we should do a podcast, because at that point, 
it seemed like nobody was doing it. And then in the interceding year, <laughs> no less than a dozen queer podcasts showed up. Yeah. So it's kind of amazing. Like it's the it's honestly the best time for queer horror. Yeah. Between really, really the is. Shutter documentary, between your site, Terry, between just the number of people who now feel comfortable calling themselves queer, whether that means bisexual, lesbian, gay, you know, pan, trans, like it's it's so refreshing to hear all these voices and uh, I don't know. I like to think that horror queers helps to augment some voices of people who maybe deserve a bigger platform or just people that they should be reading or listening to and in the process i've managed to find a person that <laughs> i should have no relationship with and yet we get along so so well and it's it's one of the highlights of my week every week that's amazing that's awesome yeah, and, i mean it's i feel the same thing when i listen to you two talk to be honest no yeah, it's it. This was I, I mean, this all started, you you know, on, a, on kind of like a lark. And it just it the fact that that it just sort of happened. And I feel that Mary Beth and I have this like chemistry together. It's just it's, mm -hmm. it's amazing. It's weird. It's just it's so odd how that kind of happens. Mm -hmm. But I, I wanted to go back to to your point about um, you saw Trace's writing on on Bloody Disgusting. I And I think this this really speaks to why representation is so important. Because, like, for the longest time, I didn't know that there was any other gay people writing about horror. And it was only by, by starting to, like, do some searching on podcasts and doing some, like, searching online to find writers and stuff that I realized that there is a little community. And it, it's kind of what helped uh, kick me in the butt to, to start. Because I, I was so afraid of, of sticking my toe in it that I would get, like blowback or that I would just be completely ignored or mm -hmm. constantly like made fun of or you know and that hasn't happened with one exception um <laughs> but uh but yeah so I, I I just I think that's so I think it's why I think it's why representation is so important in yeah. our, our genre yeah exactly 100% it's surprising the number of people like so when we first started doing the article series in particular, because it's on Bloody Disgusting, they have a very active comment section. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and yes, I'm not going to throw Bloody Disgusting under the bus because John Squires and Brad Miska are just absolutely great. And they're, they're actually angels. very open at letting people pitch them, whereas other sites are not quite as open to like novice writers kind of mm -hmm. cutting their teeth yeah. on it. Um, but yeah, some of the comment sections can be a little bit rough. So we would routinely get comments that, you know, it, it's the same old kind of thing that you always see. It's like, why do you have to politicize horror? Why can't we just enjoy a good kill? Like, why do you have to make this about women? Why do you have to make this about being gay? And you're just like, because it's always been about that stuff exactly. and it's our time now like yep. we finally have the access and the representation and the people who are willing to stick their necks out and say you know what i have a different read of this film yeah and it's only because people have been willing to say you know what i identify as insert fill in the blank that we're now actually seeing a, a shift in culture yeah and different ways to, like like you mentioned, different ways to read things. And I was thinking, this is not related to horror, but I was I, I kind of cut my teeth a little bit in the video game realm. 
uh, writing, and I left it because it's a cesspool. Of, um, <laughs> yeah, of it's like people. there's different levels of cesspool, and right. I think video games, unfortunately, may be at the bottom. Uh, right, but um, but I I remember the the biggest time, like the biggest thing was when Robert Ro- Robert Roger Ebert back in like the early 2000s was like, video games are not art. Nah. And then all the gamers would get upset, and I was upset too because I consider I consider some video games art in the same Absolutely. way that, that that movies are right. So, but like now we've come to this point where okay, all right, gamers, it is art. So now we're going to analyze it from different from different ways because that's what you do with art. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, people are like, ah, you're politicizing it. So they yeah. do the same thing. <laughs> it's like this double edged sword of like, okay, all right, you you win, it is art. But so let's talk about it as if it is, and then you get the the pushback yeah well Uh, i think people start to get afraid they there's a bunch of people who have maybe never had to think of the thing that they love or that they make in a certain way and now all of a sudden they're starting to get people creeping in from the margins and saying oh i've got this other read or hmm like maybe you should have done things a little bit different and i think unfortunately there's a lot of and yeah i'm gonna say it it's a bunch of straight, white, rich men, mm-hmm. you know, and they may come in a certain combination of some of those traits, but they they have never felt pushback. They have never mm-hmm. had the world be anything but theirs. So all of a sudden to be confronted by black people or Hispanic people or gay people or women suddenly saying, hmm, can't you do better? Couldn't you have included something? Why did your story have to be told in this way? It's very terrifying to them, which yep. I love. Me too. It's great. <laughs> yeah. It's awesome. I wrote, um, I have a column on Bloody Disgusting about rape revenge movies directed by women. And boy, oh boy. Mm. Boy, oh boy, was that a fun com- I shouldn't have read the comment section. I think Anya Stanley tweeted. I said, I read the comment section. She's like, oh, Carl, don't do that. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> Megan Navarro's like, I, I hit publish and then I walk away. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I just, I was curious and I, I'm never going to be curious again. Well, I mean, I the, the unfor- <laughs> it's just so sad, though, right? Because part of the reason that we write is, A, because we've got ideas and we're trying to get them down and we want to work yeah. through them. But also, I love the idea of engaging with people in that, the dialogue. Yes. That's exactly what I love. Like, I love being able to, like, put that out there but then have a conversation with people and, like, really dig into it. Because I've had a lot of experiences with people having a different perspective or a similar perspective and we have a really good conversation and I love that about my writing I think like I don't want my writing to just go out into the void and just kind of exist without there being a dialogue Mm -hmm. I think I don't write to just like have a byline I write to yeah talk to people yeah if you're writing to just have the byline then I mean I don't want to say you're doing it wrong but it's harder to feel fulfilled I find yeah especially in the horror community I think For me, like, I just feel like I know so many passionate people in the community that might not be writers, but have, like, a lot of awesome opinions, and it's just great to be able to share those opinions with them and talk to them on Twitter or wherever. Mm -hmm. Um, It just feels weird not to want to engage with those people, at least, like, in a positive way. I don't want to... Well, and that's the thing, right? It's this idea that we're doing this because we want to spark something in people. And I don't care if people don't agree with me. I actually, I like it when people don't agree with me because I want to hear what they have to say. And oftentimes they come back and they're like, oh, I I thought about it in a completely different way. And that's fascinating. Yeah, I love that. 
But not when you're a dick about it. Exactly. Exactly. And this is the difference, right? (laughs) People are always like, oh, well, you don't like people disagreeing with you. I'm like, no, no, no. That is not true. I don't like when people are mean to me when they disagree with me (laughs) or they like talk (laughs) down to me when they disagree with me. It is very different. I love a good debate. I just don't like it when the person tries to punch down and belittle. That oh yeah, very different. <laughs> Which is why I so appreciated that really extended conversation that you had with about Black Christmas. Oh yeah, <laughs> because I I was a hundred percent right there for it because all I saw were people trying to dance their way around the fact that what they were reacting to was misogyny, and you're just like. If you don't like the film, that's 100% fine. But if you say, oh, you know, like, if men had have written this, it would have been so much better. Or, you know, these these two bitches don't have any talent. Or the message is so on the nose. And you're like, but those are different kinds of criticisms. You're not actually yes. engaging with the film anymore. You're talking about how you don't want women in horror. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's it's ridiculous and it's like at all it's and it's very it's hard and kind of discouraging sometimes for me to see that kind of conversation where people don't understand like that kind of criticism yeah. is bad and they're like what do you mean like you're a critic you say you disagree with like you don't like things sometimes I'm like yeah, yes you don't like things all the their, time <laughs> it's not based on their gender or their race it's just based on storytelling it has nothing to do with who they like i don't know it's just very frustrating that yeah. it seems so hard to have like a nice conversation even if it doesn't like like you said, Tara and I had a great conversation, and we didn't agree, but it wasn't, like... Yeah, it's like not it like you started combative. punching each other below the belt. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, I, I mean, and it it it's nice. The thing I liked about it is being able to have a conversation with someone and kind of... I mean, I could definitely see where Mary Beth is coming from, and I was hoping she could see where I came from. Oh, I and definitely just like, saw where you were coming from, 100%. Yeah, so it's just, it's it's one of those things where it's like, I, I mean, this is this is what art is, and this is what we should be doing with art. You put it out there, and then people bring with it their, their experiences, and then they discuss it, and then they, I, I don't know. I just, yeah, I, it was one of the things where, like, we were talking about, should we talk about this? And, and then it just sort of blossomed into mm-hmm. <laughs> that 30 minute conversation um, oh yeah and if you ever if you have to ask yourself should we talk about this the answer is always yes oh, and i'm yeah. so glad we did because i have just like i wrote a review for it for much ado about cinema but i had just so many thoughts so many personal thoughts so many so many feelings well i fucking love that movie and i and like through all of its imperfections i totally know there are flaws but you know what fuck it i love that movie so much and honestly, if, <laughs> I, I'm fingers crossed right now. You can't see me, but I am crossing my fingers. I think that people's opinions will change when they have some distance from it. But mm-hmm. also, if we get an R-rated cut of that on mm. a Blu-ray or a VOD oh release, if we can watch it the way it was actually shot, I appreciate yes. everything April Wolf and Sophia Tikal were trying to accomplish. But let's be honest, if we can see the R-rated cut, I think a lot of people will start to change the way that they felt about that. The message is always going to be heavy-handed because mm-hmm. that's what they intended. Yeah. But I think it will play better as a film if we can see some of that gore. And I swear, I'm not even like an R-rated person. Yeah. No, not either. It's just, that film though. was so obviously shot for an R rating and then they had yeah. to hack it down to a PG-13. Like, that's... I've never seen a film so egregiously edited down. Yeah. yeah, I was pretty bummed about that. That's that's the thing in the, in the conversation between like PG thirteen horror and R rated horror. I don't I don't care, but if you're making it for that that rating, then 
I want to see what you made, right? So like, yeah. like you said, if it's a rated, if you shot it as a rated R movie and then you decide to cut down as PG thirteen, I that's when I have a problem with it. But like, or w- when you had like a, a PG thirteen movie in some some cases, and then they just start throwing in all this other stuff because like, oh, let's make it R now, and let's but, and you kind of change the intent of it. Yeah. I don't know. I just that's where I kind of get a little iffy both ways, but. Well, I think that's where the art starts to change into consumerism because right. you're yeah. immediately beginning to think, okay, who is our audience? How can we make money off of this? And unfortunately, like those are decisions, I guarantee you, we're not in control of those two women creators. Absolutely not. Oh, right. uh, absolutely not. No way. And like they were talking, I saw something on Twitter. I think it was from April about how like there were certain scenes they had to like cut references to like to rape they couldn't say the word rape a certain number of times or something and they had to edit a lot of things around for the MPA rating like oh, the MPAA rating and yep. there was like MPAA. a lot of really weird I fucking hate the MPAA yeah and there was like a lot of things around mentioning sexual assault and saying the words that that affected the rating too and mm-hmm. it was really weird they, there was like a lot of it sounds like there was a lot of like having to edit in very weird ways around like very particular slash arbitrary requirements from the MPAA. So, I oh mean, yeah, because female sexuality yep. is the one of those things that will get you an R rating or an NC seventeen, yep. which is insane. We are yep. literally politicizing and policing women's bodies. But sure, Love it. yeah, there's no issue at all. No, it's completely <laughs> fine. It's my favorite. I love it. Awesome, guys. Please continue to police my body. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. Happy 2020. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. It's a brand new decade. It's a brand new year. Things are going to change this year. Come on. I can only yeah. hope. Uh, <laughs> I can shit. Only hope. I have torpedoed your podcast, haven't I? I apologize. No, I love it. This is amazing. So um, so speaking of like 2020, what, what have you guys been watching recently? What have I been watching? So my 2020 has been off to a really weird start in terms of like watching of like first watches but i did watch sweetheart okay jd dillard's monster movie and i love it so much i mean i think the i've seen a bunch of this on twitter but the reveal of the monster is the best like Mm -hmm. one of the best scenes of 2019 and i just absolutely love um fuck what's her name kiersey clemens yes is it kiersey clemens yeah she was so good in Sweetheart. I mean, most of the film, she carries most of the film and yeah. she barely mm-hmm. talks and it's just like the her physicality and the way she carries this role is just so enthralling to watch. And I mean, I could have just watched it without it being a monster movie. And then you have this added kind of like horror aspect and I just absolutely loved it. It was a good, tight monster film. Yeah. And man, oh man, like, and it's on Netflix now, everyone, or Amazon Prime, so... Check that one out because I'm heard a lot about it and I'm so glad I watched it. Um, it's like one of the best, one, not my favorite, one of my favorites, 2019, but up there. Like such a good, such a good movie. Yeah. And then I finally watched Ginger Snaps. Oh, hey. Mm-hmm. I need to watch that. That's still. not new, but I finally watched Ginger Snaps and obsessed. And now I want to write a lot of things about werewolves. So. Get ready for that, everybody. I have a lot of feelings <laughs> about the gender dynamics of werewolves that oh, I yeah. really am fascinated with. And I want to read more about it because I know I've it's not a new topic, but I just have a lot of interesting thoughts and feelings about the way that women versus men are portrayed as creatures of the night. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that was an amazing first watch as well. I love the the werewolf design specifically is so cool. Yes, practical tr- effects forever. 
so good. Mm. And, like, the progression. And, I mean, I've seen screen caps of it before, but the, just the progression of, like, her hair slowly turning white. Mm-hmm. And then, like, the hair growing on her face. And it, it was just such an amazing way to depict transformation. Um, yeah. It and it's, of, I think oh, it's impossible to watch that movie without falling in love with Catherine Isabel as well. I, like, my gay and heart. I'm not even like, oh my God, like, I'm, I'm a queer man. I'm totally in love with her. Yas, queen, fierce, fierce, fierce. Like, <laughs> she, she is sexuality embodied she, in that movie. Like, I am a queer woman, and I was like, I want to be your friend and also your girlfriend. Mm -hmm. Like, she is just Mm -hmm. such, like, the vibe around her is just, like, confidence. And she has this, like, aura of just, like, knowing what she's doing and, like, always being very sure of herself. And it's, like, from the very beginning she has that vibe. And I just absolutely love it. Um, And then it reminds – so, have you you seen When Animals Dream? No. Either of you? Mm Mm-mm. It's a Danish werewolf movie, um, and they have. It's about a, a girl again. It's about a girl. It's a girl turning into a werewolf, and it's amazing. Um, and they, t- I think, they take a lot of signals from the werewolf design in Ginger Snaps. Oh, interesting. Um, I would definitely recommend that. It's a really good movie. Um, okay. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna do a recommendation. I'm gonna give you two recommendations. Maybe. Okay. If you want to stay with female empowerment werewolves, I'm okay. I'm. Sort of spoiling it, but there's a Brazilian film called Good Manners. I oh, am obsessed with Good Manners. Okay, fantastic. I love. I actually wrote a call. I write a column for Nightmare on Film Street, and I wrote about Good Manners, and it's one of my columns for like foreign, like non-American horror you need to watch. Yes, and that was one of them because that is a hundred percent one of those films where it is not getting the credit or the awareness mm-hmm. that it deserves. It's so I agree. good. And then really the other is. film, not Werewolf, but it's it's in my. F- my quadrilogy of female coming of age monster films, which is Raw Ginger Snaps. Um, oh shit, shit, shit! I've fought, I've forgotten one of them. Uh, but the most recent one is Blew My Mind. Blew my if mind. you haven't seen that, I love Blew My Mind. It's so good. I love. You know what? My I think my favorite movie besides vampire movies is when young girls turn into weird monsters. Yes, <laughs> it's my favorite. Yeah. It's the best because <laughs> it's the perfect metaphor for a coming of age sexuality you know merging into adulthood but then it's i don't know there's just something so empowering about these films because they're playing with the sexuality of it but they're acknowledging how monstrous becoming an adult can be yeah it's just and like you don't see the equivalency for men like there's because there's no interest in men becoming sexually active it's like no that's fine. Just get it away from me. <laughs> That's interesting. I had never actually thought about that. And I also feel like people are so scared of female bodies. Mm-hmm. And, like, aren't, are so confused by them sometimes. And, like, well, the yeah. weird processes that we go through. But also, yeah. like, men go through some weird shit, too. We really do. I mean, but you don't it... get your period, but it's like, I don't know. I feel like you still get the hormonal stuff. And, like, I don't know. I feel like it's just as nightmarish, just in a very different way. But I can't, obviously, I cannot speak to that as I am. But the difference is, is that it's male creators. So that's good. You, that's true. If you want to think about men being afraid of women, it's like, yeah, we need to turn these these burgeoning adult women into monsters. Hell yeah. Well, and I think that it's... <laughs> if they're eating men, then I'm all for it. Yeah. Hell yeah. Kill them. <laughs> Just kill them. Just kill them. Just do it. Uh, um, yeah. Terry, what have you been watching? 
Um, so by the time this episode airs, uh, the embargo will be up, and I know all three of us, I'm pretty sure, have seen this movie, and we all three have different reactions. So I'm, I'm gonna be. I wanted to throw this out there to kind of have like a little discussion, maybe. But um, I saw. I finally saw Color Out of Space. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> And Mary Beth, you really like. I one, love right? Color Out of Space. And Joe, no, I okay. I despised it. Really? Oh, I'm interested to hear why. I mean, I can give you two short answers, and then maybe okay. we can use that as a conversation builder. Okay. So I don't like Lovecraft, and not just oh. as a person. He's a terrible person, but I often don't like a lot of the films and TV shows that kind of have a okay. Lovecraftian influence. Um, okay. I know I... that doesn't always resonate with the two of you. I'm a very narrative-driven person, and okay. Lovecraft does not adhere no, to that. Not. Okay. You're right. Valid. Um, I'm obsessed with Lovecraft, but again, it yeah. is not. he is, like... Cosmic horror is not for everyone. <laughs> no. And and it's one of those things where I almost watch from the corner and say, like, ah, oh, if only I could. Because when I see people talking about how much they love Lovecraft or Cosmic Horror, I just think, mm, I don't feel that way. <laughs> <laughs> so there was that. And then, to be honest, there's the Nicolas Cage of it all. Yep. Oh, you didn't like Nicolas Cage? I okay, so I don't necessarily think that he's doing a bad job. He's not my favorite actor. Okay, yeah. But I think the issue with him in this particular film is that there are moments where he's supposed to go cuckoo bananas like he normally does, but then there's also moments where he's supposed to have really emotionally grounded interactions about his, you know, family members who are decaying and and merging and all this crazy shit is happening. Uh, so I saw this at TIFF and it premiered yeah, at Midnight so Madness and the audience was eating up the insanity. That but was then, me. <laughs> but, but then when he was being serious, people were still laughing. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's true. I think I was also guilty of that because it just, it felt like me, it was felt like he was, um, playing his character in Mandy again. Mm-hmm. But it's not Mandy. Like, this film no, I is know. emphatically not Mandy. Oh, exactly. And that's the problem is people look at it and they're like, oh, it's just the, Nicola- the latest Nicolas Cage gonzo movie. But I don't actually but, think that's what the film is going for. But I think yeah. by casting him, it, just it loses it a lot of the emotional resonance. And for me, it just became a slog. Like, it's a really long movie as well. So for someone who doesn't like cosmic horror and who felt like that main character was miscast, it just doesn't connect. Okay. Yeah, and see, it, it's interesting to, to hear the both of you talk because, like, in one in one part I'm in Joe's camp, and in the other part I'm in Mary Beth's camp. Because, like, <laughs> which is which, Terry? <laughs> because I I don't like Nicolas Cage, um, no. and I I feel I, it. What bothered me is the same kind of thing that kind of bothered you in this movie, Joe. But also, it felt like he was channeling Trump. Like when he was going crazy, all of a sudden his voice took on Trump mannerisms. Oh, interesting. I didn't even think and, about that. He just and it was just it really took me out of it and I he was supposed to for most of the film he's supposed to be kind of like the bedrock the emotional foundation of this family that is deteriorating around him and then eventually he succumbs to it as well but I never really got that from him Um, he's on a completely different level like every single member of this family is acting in a completely different film 
Yeah. And to, on some degree, I kind of feel that that kind of ties into the idea of this. What would happen if you, if some if this color of, from outer space that you've never experienced before, it's going to affect people in different ways. And so mm-hmm. I kind of... I kind of dug that aspect of it that everyone felt like they're in a different film. I mean, you have the one girl who's like riding horses and it almost looks like mm-hmm. she could be in some like fairy tale like story. And then you have, uh, I don't forget. It was a Chong and one of the <laughs> teacher Chong. I can't remember is playing the, yeah. the guy on the edge of the, in the little hut that's yeah. smoking. And I, I don't, it's just so like, I love, I love, Whenever I say this, I have to, of course, caveat it with I hate the guy, but I love Lovecraft stories. Okay. Um, so from that aspect, I thought this was a very well overall, like narratively, a very faithful adaptation of that of that story, which is one of my favorite of his of his uh, short stories. Mm. Um, it's just I wish that they had cast someone other than Nicolas Cage. Yeah, because we're we're really living in this world now where if you see Cage in a film, you go in expecting a certain type of performance. And when that gels with what the movie is trying to accomplish, like Mandy, then it it all comes together. Right. And then when you see it in something where he's just playing at a different pitch than everybody else, like I watched the terrible action movie Primal. Primal Yeah. Last year. Yeah. And you're just like, where, what, why? Like, it doesn't come together at all. And yeah. that's just because, I mean, for for love or hate, Nicolas Cage is kind of just out there in his own realm. Yes. And when he lands a good project or something that fits his sensibility, it's a marriage made in heaven. But otherwise, it's it's just like, no, this is not working because he is not right for this role or this movie and he are out of sync. Yeah. Yeah. But like it's it's been weird to have seen this film. Like I think I saw it Mary Beth maybe you can remind me, but I think the the Toronto premiere at TIFF was the world premiere. Uh, yeah, it was. So then to so to see it and have just this overwhelmingly negative reaction and then to watch other people talk about it like, oh, that was one of my favorites from Fantastic Fest. Oh, this is the movie I'm most excited to watch in 2020 and I'm just like, oh, I'm on the margins here. <laughs> okay. Well, it'll be interesting when it comes out, like to audience, like wider audiences, to see what people think. Because I loved it because I have, I am like a very, very big fan of cosmic horror, Lovecraft mm-hmm. adaptations, and like Terry said, Lovecraft is a shitty human being. He's mm-hmm. terrible. But I think, but what, he has produced some great art. He has produced some yes. great art, and he all. I think the the way he is influenced, like better people and better projects is important because instead of just calling it Lovecraft you like to call it cosmic horror so it doesn't like put all the onus on him for being like (laughs) right I like that it removes his power it removes his power so cosmic horror is one of my all-time favorite subgenres I've written a lot about it and then it's really hard to find good cosmic horror because when it is done poorly it is done very poorly and Mm -hmm. I think it is a very hard they're hard concepts to really put onto film because cosmic horror is about like indescribable feelings and like overwhelming madness and incomprehensibility and that is so i feel so hard to really capture yeah and i think that this movie for me and what i have seen captures that kind of incomprehensibility and insignificance in such a great way that i have not seen in a lot of cosmic horror 
And, like, so, like, I've seen that, I mean, like, a couple of things that come to mind are, like, The Endless. Like, the ben, Benson and Warhead do Cosmic Horror, I think, really well, especially yes, with yes. The Endless. Love it. And, um... And I, Spring, really. And Spring, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I just was really taken aback by how much Color Out of Space took that and put it also in a contemporary context and made something so engaging for me i didn't feel the runtime and it just felt so crazy but so in the vein of what i look for in cosmic horror like it wasn't afraid to be batshit crazy it wasn't afraid to take risks and while not every risk paid off for me it was successful in terms of trying to take that the themes of cosmic horror and put them into a film adaptation that is like based in the contemporary and does something wild mm-hmm. yeah. I will confess, I, it's it's a gorgeous-looking movie. Like, yes, when things really start is. to fall apart, it's visually just amazing to watch. Yeah. I'm really excited. It's it's playing at a Panic Fest, um, and I'm really excited to see it actually in a theater to see what yeah. my, experience, my experience is with, with it as opposed to being on my, my little TV. Yeah. And I'm excited to watch it again because I think – I watched it on Festival Brain. So Festival yeah. Brain, I had been watching movies. It's a real problem. <laughs> it is a real problem. Like, Festival Brain is real. Like, you just have, like, no, you're watching movies so much back to back. And, like, your your conception of things is a little bit twisted. So, like, I mean, and I was so tired. We saw it at midnight at TIFFs. Mm. I was exhausted. It's a lot. And so, and so, like, I want to watch it again and see how I feel about it now as opposed to when I was at TIFF. Because maybe it'll change. But... Overall, I just absolutely enjoyed the batshit crazy ride that was that movie, and it includes alpacas, which is yeah, fucking weird. The meat but... of the future. So I don't know. I just I I fell for it. And that's fine. I loved it. What about you, Joe? What What have you been watching recently? Okay, so since the new year has begun, I have checked out the new Grudge film. Oh. Yeah. How have you two that? seen I've, this? I have not. Um, the online, the online reactions are making me not sure if I want to see it in theaters. Yeah, Same. they are not kind. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, and I feel so bad. Nicholas Pesci is such a good director. Well, I think that's actually been one of the more interesting stories to come out of this. Are the people who have seen his previous films? And questioning whether or not he was the right person or how much of his sensibility has made it into this final product. Okay. Because this film has had a very it's had a wild production. Yeah, it's had a wild production. It was production. supposed to come out last summer. It was supposed to come it. out last June. Yeah. And then they okay. pushed it back. And it's not because, you know, like Disney bought Fox or something like that. Like, apparently Und- Underwater is in the exact same situation, but that's a merger situation. That's why oh, it hasn't yeah, been yeah. released. Okay. Whereas The Grudge, I think they realized that there was some issues with the final product, and that's why they postponed. So I haven't seen The Eyes of My Mother, but I have seen Piercing. I don't know that it feels like his film. People have referenced a meanness in this film that I can definitely see from Piercing. Oh, yeah. And I've heard that Eyes of My Mother is even more so. Like, oh, I, it, it is. Yeah, just nothing but, you know, oh, this is a hard film to watch. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. really is. It will linger in your head. 
I think the biggest issue with the grudge is that it doesn't feel like it's bringing anything new to the table. So it's playing within the conventions and the tropes of that grudge Juan universe. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it, this is not a series that favors characterization. So even right. though there's really good people in this movie, like there's a lot of you, you watch the people and you're like, oh, Damien Bashir. Oh, you yeah, know, cast uh, is stacked. Yeah, like ev- like all of these people are really great, but the f- the narrative doesn't favor character development. So there's little glimpses, like everyone in the movie is dealing with some kind of personal emotional trauma. So it's like some like a husband has died, a mother has died, we've got a child with a developmental disorder. All of these people are dealing with big things, but that doesn't feel like it goes anywhere and it doesn't mm. inform you know the the trauma that they're about to experience by entering this cursed household right and then the other big issue is that this is a transplant so it's not set in japan like the 2004 version with sarah michelle geller which i think was the strongest component of that film yeah Mm -hmm. and like the new house design is like it looks like a fucking generic house it could, okay. it could be from the Conjuring universe, and you wouldn't See, notice. And and then the Grudge, it was an iconic house like that. Oh house my god! Yes, yeah. yeah. They it's spent perfect. a lot of time making that house distinctive and yeah. unique. That staircase. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and I just feel like I haven't I haven't seen the new one, but for me, just taking it out of Japan also takes away a lot of like the weight of the belief in the spirit. Like, yes. Japan has such a like a rich and complex like pantheon of spirits in Japan and like mm-hmm. the history, like just the way they, they associate with spirits is very complicated and very complex and fascinating. And I feel like taking yes. that out of Japan takes a lot of a lot of that context and a lot of like why it's so terrifying. Yeah. Um, which I mean, it seems like a very weird choice to me and I don't know if appropriative is the right word, but like kind of appropriative in a way where it's like you're it, missing. I mean, and this happens, I feel like so much with, american adaptations of japanese films like you just miss that yeah you don't have that same kind of cultural connection to spirits and to ghosts that they do so it it doesn't feel as terrifying i think no in that context i guess and amusingly enough like the the film almost seems to be implicitly acknowledging that because the ghosts in this film are americans like it's an american woman who has who's come back from japan because she was like there's something wrong with this house so she's the one who brings the curse and then she becomes the new kayoko and she like kills her family but by doing so you're almost acknowledging like oh yeah americans just steal stuff from japan (laughs) and then we get this watered down lesser version of that's something yeah, it's not great. I don't great. know how I feel about that one, but okay. No. I mean, I think at the end of the day, the like the F Cinema score is shocking to me. Yeah. It, it, it's not shocking. a film that's so bad that it deserves that, and it's not divisive enough to merit that. It's just, it's kind of boring. That's mm. the biggest complaint. I still really want to see it, because I love The Grudge. So, And I liked the 2004 version when I when I saw it when I was younger. I mean... I haven't seen it, it in a long time. It didn't age well for me. What'd you say? It didn't age well for me. I just recently yeah. watched it. And I need to revisit it. because I kind of like, like hmm, this is also a little boring <laughs> in hindsight. Yeah. So, I'm ex- I mean, I'm excited to see it. I don't, I know that it might not be very good, but still. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's not the worst film that you're going to see this year. It's more you look at it and you can see some of the missed opportunities. Yeah. 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 So I saw that and then Dracula and the Sonata. And I'm not sure either one of those are really interesting enough to merit talking about. <laughs> yeah. So we talked about what we've seen recently, but... Maybe we can go back to the past and talk about the film you brought with you this week. Joe, what are we talking about? <laughs> I apologized <laughs> off air, but I'll do it again now that we're recording. So I'm sorry to say that I have brought to you ghoulies <laughs> from the early 80s. So I am so excited that you did. But um, we have a little plot synopsis. Do you want to dig into yeah. it, Mary Beth? Yeah, because I had actually never heard of Ghoulies until we were about to record this episode. So oh <laughs> I'm, in, I'm hoping that this will be helpful for some other people. Yes. So released in January 1985, Ghoulies is an amalgamation of much better movies that will make you wonder why you're not watching those instead. Mm-hmm. From the chest-bursting violence of Alien, the gooby creatures from Gremlins, to a party city version of the clown from Poltergeist, and the climax of Return of the Jedi, nothing mm-hmm. is spared. The story is slight. <laughs> It's about a 35-year-old teenager, Jonathan Graves, Peter <laughs> Lipus, who decides to quit school, summon demons, force his girlfriend to become his slave, wear plot-important sunglasses, and basically, we're not sure, mm-hmm. bring back his father from the grave? Yeah. But the biggest twist is that it's actually a self-prequel to Hereditary. <laughs> oh, Paimon. Hey, I mean, like, this guy looks like he is not a teenager. Like, no. I was watching this this morning with my boyfriend, and he was like, he's a college student? Are you joking? He looks like he's 40. I'm like, they're, exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't understand how old he is supposed to be. So they say in the film he is meant to be 25 years old, which, by my math, he should have still already graduated college by that age. Yeah, I, that's <laughs> right. ridiculous. The entire cast looks way too old to be college students. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So... Joe, how old were you when you first saw this movie? Okay. So I'm going to provide you with a bit of context. Because if I'm being honest, the real film that I should have brought to you is Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay. Oh, okay. But that's not a horror film, and I didn't want to just come in to talk solely about the one scene where they open the Ark of the Covenant and everybody's face melts off and how that gave me a literal month of nightmare, like... unable to sleep having to stay with my parents and my parents Mm -hmm. literally telling me okay you are no longer ever allowed to watch scary movies (laughs) (laughs) but the the fun thing that people should know about me so i've i've talked on kill by kill i've talked on my own podcast about how my horror indoctrination was really two clive barker films which was Candyman and Mm -hmm. hellraiser and those are two films that i absolutely love and i'll talk about them to anybody but the real reason that those films which were released at the end of the 90s or the or sorry the end of the 80s or the early 90s are my introduction to horror is because my parents paid me to not watch television and movies throughout the 80s oh excuse me yeah so they were afraid (laughs) some more information on this one (laughs) so they were afraid of of media like they wanted me to have an imagination they wanted me to go outside they were i think rightly afraid that i was just going to waste away watching movies or living inside the home all the time okay so they were like we will pay you a hundred dollars a year to not watch tv or movies 
And at the time when you're what a kid, shit? you're like, yes, absolutely, a hundred dollars a year. That's a, it's a like million that dollars. Lot. That's true. When you're a kid, that's like, oh my god, that is an incomprehensible amount of money. Yeah, yeah like I could buy so many Sega and Nintendo game cartridges with oh this my money. God, yes. <laughs> so my only exposure to media. Like, I've, I've actually had to go back and consume 80s media because it was a huge gap for me as an adult. So I yeah. never watched oh. Simpsons. I had never, you know, I had never watched Murphy Brown. I had never watched, like, any of these sitcoms. And, of course, I had definitely not watched horror because my parents had forbidden me from watching anything. <laughs> Enter Ghoulies, which I saw at a slumber party when I was oh, about yeah. seven or eight years old. So this is the advent of the VCR. We, yep. I had gone over to a friend's house, and there was a group of us. We had rented a movie, and there's this iconic movie poster for Ghoulies, which is some creepy little fucker coming out of a toilet. <laughs> yep. And all you can think of as a little kid when you see this is, what is that? I need to get it into my eyeballs right now. <laughs> so we rent this movie, and I, I haven't seen this movie since... So going back and revisiting it, as I'm sure you've had many podcast guests comment before, you know, mm. like I barely remember parts of this, and yet there are certain iconic scenes that just stand out in your mind, and you're like, oh, right, that was the thing. So for me, the big thing that I remember from this movie was the opening scene where it's just like some cult trying to sacrifice a baby, which is mm -hmm. terrifying. <laughs> right. I'm like, is this Willow? What am I watching? Oh my god, I know. <laughs> There's another movie it's pulled from, right? Yeah. Oh, this, <laughs> like, this movie is fucking cobbled together by better movies. You are 100% right, Mary Beth. Uh, so there's that. And then the other scene was where just all of the friends die and nobody seems to give a shit until that <laughs> final battle where you just see all of their bodies slumped with like slumped. bloody wounds seeping through their robes. And I remember thinking, what if I just randomly discover some body under my bed with, you know, a hole in it? And wouldn't that be terrifying? Yep. Wow. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm, I'm really glad that you did pick this movie though, Joe, because, um, I, I was trying to think, I, I, to my knowledge, I had never seen this movie before in my life. And as I was doing some, like, digging on Wikipedia and stuff, things were coming back to me. And it turns out that I have seen part of it. Oh. Um, I remember renting this. My parents rented this movie. It was PG-13. And um, we started watching it. And we literally got to the scene in the opening where the woman's chest is bursting open. Yep. And my parents turned. <laughs> they were like, and that's ah, enough okay. for that. <laughs> Which is so weird. And because here's the thing, like I was I was somewhere between seven and nine when I saw this. It must have been. But I had seen Alien when I was eight. Oh. And they let me watch that. And they were taking joy in making me watch. And I have a story about that that I'm hoping we'll talk to at some point. But um so I don't I did I was trying to think back about what was it about this movie that made my parents say nope this is the one you're not watching. And I think it has to do with Satanism mm -hmm. oh. because my dad has had a weird fascination and aversion to the occult. He has books on the occult on Aleister Crowley. And I remember when I was a teenager, I, I got into role-playing games, Dungeons and Dragons and everything. And I remember branching out of that and one time buying um, this white wolf book called mage, the accession. And it's, it's basically just like, you know, a, 
sit down Dungeons and Dragons thing, but it was about mages and they reference Aleister Crowley and my dad found the book and he's like, no, you can't have this. And I was a teenager at the time. So I was, I'm, I'm thinking that maybe the whole reason I wasn't able to see this movie was because of the satanic panic of the, of the eighties. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. This yeah. film feels almost on the cusp of it because I don't think the satanic panic really started to gather momentum until around the time that this film was coming out. Right. But when you, yeah, when you watch it, you're like, oh shit, this movie is literally all about the concern that somebody's just going to find a book and start summoning spirits Summon and trying demons. to get Satan into your life. Yeah. Which is hysterical remember... because there's nothing about this movie that's actually scary. <laughs> and it's completely nonsensical. So the idea that you could watch this and be at all tempted to go to the dark arts, no, 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 no. <laughs> I mean, you could shoot lasers out of your eyes and and have like really weird uh, mismatched eye placement. Did you guys notice? Oh that? my god, like, that was okay. When I was watching this today, Steve and I were like, his pupils keep moving, and one of them <laughs> seems to just be on vacation, like on another side of his eye. And every time they showed his eyes, the pupils were different and the contacts were different. And it was just yep. very confusing. And <laughs> we were fixating on that, which tells you about what we were actually paying attention to. Oh, because there's a, there is no plot. It doesn't make any kind of there sense. No so plot. half the time you're just like, oh, okay, well, let's let's dig into what's going on with his eyes. And how did they achieve those green lights? And how come they're, you know, why are they inconsistent? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yep. Uh, so you hadn't. You, you said you hadn't seen this, right, Mary Beth? I had never even heard of it. Um, <laughs> I am younger, um, which probably has something <laughs> to do with that. So I'd never even heard of it. But so uh, it's obviously like not the gr- the greatest movie. And I was very confused as to why all the marketing was about a little guy coming out of a toilet, and he only is coming out of a toilet for like half a second at one point. I was like so hype. For this to be a movie about, like, little, like, toilet demons. Yeah. And it wasn't. And I was pretty bummed about that. I even texted Terry. I'm like, is this, like, going to be, like, weirdly have a queer subtext about, like, things bursting, like, into your ass? And, like, weird, like, anti, like, gay subtext about, like, like homosexuality? And Terry was like, no, Mary Beth. <laughs> well, there is a lot of queer subtext, but yes, not in the is. way you would imagine. Yes. <laughs> but before we get to that, I really wanted to piggyback off because you both have talked about the image of the, the ghoulie coming out of the toilet, yeah, right? Classic so, 80s mismarketing. Yes. Well, here's the funny thing about that. Um, after the movie was over, because I'm a glutton for punishment, I found that there's a ghoulie's making of that was included in the uh, the Shout Factory uh, Blu-ray. Oh, nice. And it. it was on YouTube. Yep, so I watched it. <laughs> And they were talking about, um, because Charlie Band, the guy that is like the producer for this, and his his brother Richard did the music for it, who's also known for the reanimator. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were trying to come up with marketing, and he was high with some guy, and the guy's like, hey, here's here's the, the, the tagline, they they eat your ass, is oh was God. it. <laughs> and they're like... What is they're the like, scariest Charlie. thing to a straight man? <laughs> right? What's this ca- like, what? <laughs> Charlie, here's the image. You get a fucking ghoulie coming out of a toilet, and the tagline is, they're eat- they'll eat your ass. And and Char- Charlie Band was talking about how, you know, I, he didn't he needed these to, like, run in New York Times, and there's, like, so many different things that you needed to do to, like, 
make sure that it was okay and that it would it would run because their their goal was to have this be a green a green band trailer that could run any time of the day and be featured mm. in any magazine. Right. So, so that's they came end. up with they'll get you in the end, which is a little uh-huh. bit more. See, that's why I was funny. like, is this going to be some? That's why I thought that. Like it got. I mean, I definitely caught on to that. I was like, oh god, is this going to be just like a like anti gay movie about things bursting <laughs> into the toilet? Like I was like, this is going to be so immature. I was. That's but what here's I thought the it twist. They had to go back and actually film a little scene so that people wouldn't be mad that there's no ghoulie popping out of the toilet. Wow. It was never planned. It was added in because of this ad from Charlie Band's mouth. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. So that's that's all about marketing right there. 100%. And <laughs> wow. the fact that you're not familiar with this franchise, because it is a franchise, folks. Yeah, There's it is a franchise. four yeah. films in this. Uh, the reason that you're probably not familiar with this is because it's not the most famous product that came out of Charles Benz. So I think most people would associate him either with Reanimator or with mm-hmm. Puppet Master. Puppet yeah. Master, So it's yeah. the, the same company that's producing those. And if you're going to be honest, like... If I'm going to check out something with shitty puppetry that's an inferior product to Gremlins, probably going to check out Puppet Master. I did kind of like the little monster design, though. Oh, yeah. They're actually surprisingly oh, yeah. fun. I want one of them. Well, and I thought I they were kind back... of cute in a really ugly, fucked up kind of way. But I was like, hell yeah. more!" They're, and they weren't, there weren't nearly enough ghoulies in the movie. Oh, I was like, no. I want more of them. They're very fun and small and gross, but I like them a lot. <laughs> like, no, it would be great. Less Jonathan Graves and more ghoulies. <laughs> yeah, Jonathan Graves, like, all of a sudden being possessed and, like, yelling words at people. Oh, and my God. Who could care? Creatures. I know. I was like, please, sir. You're like, no. it's so, another white college dropout who thinks that he's all that. Give me the give me the disgusting little creatures with the slime because at least they got a personality. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they have those little dudes have more personality than the human characters, which is hilarious. And great. Joe, do you remember Boglins? Mm-hmm. Actually, when Mary when... Beth was like, Oh, I want like a product, I want one of these, I was like, <laughs> Oh, Girl, let me tell you about Boglins. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> do you know what Boglins are? Right no, I do not know okay. what Okay, so in the 80s, around this time when, like, you know, you had the Critters and you had Gremlins and you had this movie, um, they they made these puppets yeah. that, so like, cute. you could put your, your hand in and they come in, like, a cage and, like, you could move their eyes back oh and God. forth. And mm-hmm. They were adorably creepy. Yeah. I had, like, two or three of them. Oh, yeah. I yeah. loved them so much. I want one. Yeah, it was, like, I think the girls got the garbage pail kids if you wanted to go, like, you know, a little bit gothy. Or if you wanted yeah. to go, oh, you're a bit odd or unusual and then of course the boys were like here's these things where you can like flap their mouths and so i i think i had two of them and i would put one on each hand and chase after my older sister (laughs) hell yeah i love that probably explains why she would then in turn chase me with a knife but uh you know those are different (laughs) stories um so the other thing that that you mentioned mary beth is you talked about um the kind of like the queer subtext and joe and i were kind of uh, DMing each other about it. This movie is gay. So it's gay. so gay. Like the, the 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 not the guy with the sunglasses, but the guy, his um his like part not partner, but kind of partner friend. Like the gaze that he gives him, like the looks, like the mm-hmm. longing looks. I was like, that's kind of hot. Oh, um, yeah. But I was like, this is such a gay movie. Like, and they even go like 
should we check in the closet? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's like, it's not even, you know, oh, we accidentally mentioned the closet because we wanted to get to the poltergeist ripoff. It's like, they hang on that line reading. Like, oh, oh yeah. yeah, so these two be fucking, right? Yes. Yep. Eddie yes. and Mike. So Eddie is the, the you know, quote unquote, regular handsome guy. Mike is like the weird guy who dances and rides a motorcycle and wears glasses. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Eddie wants to fuck Mike like nobody's business. But like the way he looks at him was so like, and they mm. linger on him too. It's like they don't just cut away. Like they linger on the way he looks at Mike. And I'm like, I love this. More well, of this, please. I don't care about and- like the cup, the straight couple that's like falling apart like i want more of mike and his handsome friend like yeah well and and even before right before they say let's look in the closet there's like a very close-up scene of the two of them that like they are within kissing distance and eddie is leaning in a bit and i'm like oh my god are they actually gonna kiss i was i know i was like oh my god please yeah breathless (laughs) anticipation because it's one of the few things that maybe saves this movie Hmm. right exactly right yeah. And like they when they first like it's like I think it's the one of the first one she's like we should have a party and they come they like zoom up on the motorcycle and they're falling all over each other I'm like oh yeah gay couple hell yeah That's yeah what we have well and Mike movie. just like leads Eddie into the the party almost by hand when when they're when they're coming in like I'm like oh that was I had to, I told Joe I had to like rewind that part because I'm like did I see that right yeah. Yeah, because it's 1984. Like, this movie got released in early 1985, but it was shot then. You're thinking, movies don't do this. Like, I've watched a number of Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th and Halloween's. I'm not seeing this in my my early 80s horror. Yeah. Or like the the the, the gender uh, bending with like the the old man when he comes back, the the father, and like he's macking on Dick. <laughs> yes, he is, Terry. Oh, that's yes, right. He is. he is macking on Dick. Also, side note: Jack Nance, who played Peter Pete Martell in Twin Peaks, is Wolfgang the groundskeeper, and oh, it was he? the best okay. part because oh, I love wow. Jack Nance. He's in like all of David Lynch's movies, and David Lynch loves Jack Nance. And when he was Wolfgang and was doing the stuff like the lightning and like appearing and disappearing, Steve and I kept going, Steve, my boyfriend, Nick, going, Jack Nance, because (laughs) we loved him so much. (laughs) So that was also a good saving point of the movie, because even though he's in it for two seconds and is also the narrator for some reason. Yeah. Why does this movie have a fucking narrator? (laughs) Oh, my God. I know. But like, not very inconsistently. It actually ends up being like a conflict between the two of them. And the the kids are immaterial. Like, they don't save the day. (laughs) They're saved because of Wolfgang coming in and... Zapping him away. But then, like, Wolfgang disappears and is the narrator, but is only the narrator at the beginning and never is the narrator again. And it's very bizarre. Yeah. Also, I would really recommend going to check out the Ghoulies making of because it has an interview with uh, I don't know how to say his name. Michael Debar is that his name? The guy that played uh, Graves, the the old the father with the villain. Yes, because he's like he's like in the interview he says Ghoulies. Let's make it perfectly clear it was not Citizen Kane. Okay, <laughs> and he like I, I think there's some animosity with him and Charlie Band because he he also makes a comment. He's like I'm sure he made a fortune. We did not. Oh. Shit. Oh. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> this is the kind of movie where you can make it on the cheap in a couple of weekends. You know, they're obviously not casting professional actors. And then all you have to do is really come up with a clever art design for your movie cover. And then you yep. just sell the shit out of this to video rental stores. 
Yeah. And one other comment that I learned from from that is about the the glasses that they wore. Because like I was watching this movie, like why are they wearing sunglasses? Mm-hmm. They apparently filmed part of it in three D, oh, and then no. decided and the glasses was going to be like the key to the audience to put on your three D glasses. Oh, fuck. And then like two days into it, the idea wasn't working, so they abandoned it. But they had the the stuff already in there, so they just kept wearing the glasses. But that's the whole reason for the glasses. That is hysterical. I love it too, yeah, because when you watch this as a modern audience, there's this moment, like, they're all just having dinner at this dinner party, but they're all wearing completely different sunglasses. And, like, the the female lead, Rebecca, it looks like she's wearing 3D glasses. Yeah. Like, the, the it, kind of shitty ones that you would get where they're completely disposable you maybe got them in a magazine at one point and you're just like these this is a choice that i don't yeah. entirely understand <laughs> oh man oh dear this movie yeah um what a film it's uh I mean, it's always hysterical. I, I anticipated having listened to a bunch of your other episodes where people have an irrational fear of something and then they go back and revisit it as an adult and realize, oh, I think I'm just an idiot because what the <laughs> fuck with this movie? And this is 100% ghoulies. <laughs> well, and yet I, I had fun watching it. Yeah, I'm glad I got to watch it. It was, it was a good, like... It wasn't meant to be a Sunday morning watch, but it became a Sunday morning watch. And it was definitely a good, like, Sunday morning horror movie to, like, laugh over coffee. I'm really glad I got to do that. Yeah. Same. So thank you, Joe. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Well, I think it just reiterates that, yeah, there was some great movies that were getting made in the 80s, and they were breaking boundaries and trying new things. But there were also a lot of films where their entire modus operandi was literally just, what can we steal from other better movies so that we can cash in... And make a few yep. bucks. Yep. And that is yep. what this film is. Yep. And then you get ghoulies. And then you get ghoulies. And <laughs> multiple subsequent franchise entries. Yeah, good lord. <laughs> but also, aren't we overdue for a ghoulies remake at this point? Oh, Jesus Christ. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Except this time, Eddie and Mike actually do kiss. Yeah, yes. and they're the main characters. Yes. Yes, please. All of it. <laughs> All right. Uh... Well, thank you, Joe, for for coming on to discuss the delightfully weird ghoulies. Uh, where um, where can our listeners find you? And do you have anything uh, you want to plug coming up? Uh, I mean, I'm as we talked about off the top. I'm writing for a bunch of different places, so the <laughs> easiest way to keep track of everything that I'm putting out is. Uh, yeah, follow me on Twitter. I'm at to be stole my remote, and that's the letter B. And uh, Horror Course comes out every Wednesday. And if you want to follow that, we have our own Twitter account for 2020. So you can Finally. follow us <laughs> at Horror Queers. Awesome. Awesome. Um, so you've heard from us, but we want to hear from you. What was your experience with Ghoulies? Send us an email at scarredforlifepodcast at gmail.com or reach out to us on Twitter at Scarred Podcast. Um, we might feature you on an upcoming episode. Um, you can also reach out to me and Terry on Twitter. I'm at MB McAndrews. And I'm at Gailey Dreadful. And like I said, tag us at Scarred Podcast if you want to talk to us on Twitter. And please don't forget to review, rate, and subscribe. Um, it really does help. It really does. Um, thank you to Steve Barnold for our artwork. Thank you to Sean Keller for our kick-ass theme song. Thank you to everyone for listening and stay creepy. And until next time. Oh, 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 oh.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>